because Mike and Nancy asked me to come and, and speak with you for a few minutes today. I've, I've spoken in front of thousands and thousands of people before, and I'm more intimidated being here in front of you <laughs> than in front of thousands of people. Let me just get that clear right up front. Oh, no. and, uh, and I really appreciate my, my good wife here, Deborah, uh, joining me today. She's, uh, she's my right-hand lady, and, and together we, we travel and do a lot of different things. Um, a little bit about myself before I begin. Um, I am what is referred to as a period historian for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, or sometimes referred to as an epic historian, E-P-I-C, meaning a window of time, just a small period. I spent about 47 years of my life studying one little window of time, 1805 through 1844. It's just the life of Joseph Smith. I, I don't go west with the saints. Um, I do some preliminary stuff prior to Joseph involving his ancestry somewhat, but uh, it's just Joseph. That's, that's all I do. Um, my background is in archaeology and anthropology, so I'm the guy that kind of digs in the dirt just a little bit, and uh, I really enjoy that, though, a lot. There's a lot to be said about the stones, and uh, I have kind of an interesting stone collection that is kind of fun, foundation stones of homes that the prophet lived in and, and things. And so... Um, when I'm, when I'm called to speak quite often, I, I speak about Joseph Smith. In fact, that's all I speak about. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Joseph Smith, but we're going to talk about four, four very, very courageous and dedicated women that played such a significant role in our opportunities today to be um, associated with the things that we believe in. But before I do that, I need to pay homage to Joseph so I can uh, say this was a, a Joseph Smith kind of a presentation. And if you have questions or you're unfamiliar with Joseph Smith or, or you'd like some answers, feel free. I don't know the... We're all LDS. Are you? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Then, then that, makes it, that makes it actually quite easy. I'm accustomed to uh, to being behind a pulpit and lecturing in a classroom setting more often than not. So if you excuse my referencing to notes for some reason, now nah, I'm I'm, I'm all right. I just got okay. this right here. It, it'll be just fine. But my mind isn't quite what it used to be. I, I don't understand that. It uh, I gain more knowledge and, and lose most of it. <laughs> and, and it just uh, it just doesn't stay. <laughs> can relate to that anyway. But um, so, so that's a little bit about me and, 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 and what I do. I, I also uh, tour. Um, the primary agency I work with is Morris Murdoch Travel. I do most of their domestic church history tours. And so I'll take six or seven groups out, hopefully this year. We'll, we'll, we'll start in June and, and start taking people around again to these sacred historic sites. And then I, I go overseas. Um, I speak Hebrew, and I'm quite familiar with um, Jewish history, and uh, I, I'm excited to take people over to the Holy Land. And uh, so we'll, we'll go and follow in the footsteps of the Savior, and, and oftentimes um, some of the cruises that I take follow the Apostle Paul and Peter around, and so we'll go uh, and, and do that likewise. So it's not just here in the United States. There was a period of time in my life when I thought that Geez, 45 years on Joseph Smith. Haven't I exhausted 
the, the relevant material and uh, a, a dream, uh, and a dream, no machine gun in this particular dream, but this dream said if I wanted to understand um, Joseph Smith better, I needed to understand my savior. And so that's when I started about 25 years ago uh, with extended research and trips with people to the Holy Land. I've been to the Holy Land probably 50 times and uh, I love, I love the Holy Land. And it's an incredible experience. If you've not been, um, you need to put it on your bucket list and probably need to do it in the next 10 years or so before things get so out of hand, uh, no one will be going to the Holy Land. Um, so it's, it's an incredible thing to do and you might want to, you might want to consider that. So um, I want to begin by just referencing a couple of conference addresses really quick if I could. In 2014, Neil, Neil Anderson said this. He said, many of those who dismiss the work of the restoration simply do not believe that heavenly beings speak to men on earth. Impossible, they say, that golden plates were delivered by an angel and translated by the power of God. From that disbelief, they quickly reject Joseph's testimony, and a few unfortunately sink to discrediting the prophet's life and slandering his character. We are especially saddened when someone who once revered Joseph retreats from his or her convictions and then maligns the prophet. This has become very, very prevalent nowadays. Very prevalent nowadays, especially with the internet. In fact, in 2016, Elder Craig Christensen said, In the war between good and evil, the restoration of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith has both inspired believers who follow him and also provoked antagonists who fight furiously against the cause of Zion and against Joseph himself. This battle is not new. It began soon after young Joseph walked into the sacred grove and continues today with added visibility on the Internet. Um, there are more than one occasion that my wife and I will receive a phone call from some distraught parent who says their child or their sibling, their young adult has been on the internet and they found stuff that is disturbing and it's shaking these, these, these testimonies, these young testimonies of these young people because of some things they, they read. And then we're asked to step in and try and assist in answering questions. Um, not only do I caution people about the internet and the sources they go to for information, especially with regards to church questions, I just know that the internet, as great a tool as it is, the internet can be used as a very evil tool too. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of people, the, the highest apostatizing rate in the church right now is ages 35 to 40. And it's because they're saying, how come we were not taught this stuff in primary? the new stuff that seems to be surfacing now with the Joseph Smith papers and other things. It wasn't so much that it wasn't taught in primary, it just wasn't emphasized so much. But um, yeah, today it requires a little stronger testimony than it might have during the time of my parents uh, because of the, uh, the addition of the internet and those kind of sophisticated um, networking things. I want to take just a second and briefly look at my wife and I do a presentation to missionaries, not zones, but missions. We've been to Portland, we've been to um, uh, Arkansas and Tulsa and, and back east in, in our mission. My wife and I not long ago just returned from a historic site mission where we served at the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial in Sharon, Vermont. And, uh, and we present a presentation called Jesus and Joseph Mere Reflections. 
and we're actually comparing the life of Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. And it is uncanny. But I want to take just a second before I get into this and just share a thought with you. Jesus descended from Judah, Joseph from Ephraim. Jesus and Joseph's missions were foreordained. Jesus was born in a small village. Joseph was born in a rural township. Jesus and Joseph both had relatively large families. Jesus and Joseph had earthly parents named Joseph. Jesus was a stonemason. And I can get into that with some of you that still want to hang on to the carpenter. Uh, we'll talk about that perhaps in just a minute. A stonemason and Joseph was a farmer. Jesus lived with apostasy in Judaism. Joseph lived with apostasy in Christianity. Both were opposed to religion. Both were opposed by religious and political leaders. Both were subject to satanic attacks. Both were ministered to by angels. Both performed miracles. Both organized a church. Both were betrayed. Both were charged with treason. Both were victims of traitorous plots. Both were abandoned by their respective governors. Both were beaten, mocked, and asked to perform miracles by their heartless captors. Jesus declared to his captors, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Joseph Smith said, you you don't know me. No man knows my history. If I had not experienced it, I would not have believed it. Both were the source of new scripture. Both sealed their testimony with their blood. Mary would bury Jesus. Lucy would, would bury Joseph. So I guess the question I would ask, because the internet is trying to portray Joseph Smith as a very average and weak individual, does this sound like to you to be an average and weak individual? Um, December 22nd is called the winter solstice. It's the darkest, longest, and at times the coldest night of the year. The ancients would be real troubled by this night because of its length, fearing that warmth and light would never return to the earth. And so they'd find their way to the edge of the great cliffs, and there they would kneel in prayer, asking for the return of light and warmth to the earth. And on December 23rd, 1805, after such a night of this, light and warmth did return to the earth. It would be the fourth child of Lucy Mack Smith and they would call him Joseph. So with that little bit of an introduction, um, we're going to talk just a little bit about these four women of courage and, and faith. As, as I talked about earlier, three of these pictures are done by a friend of my wife and I's from, from Vermont. Her name is Jane Arnold. This one here, that one, and that one. This one here is replicated from a huge mural in Magdala. Magdala is right on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Magdala, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. This particular synagogue seems to be dedicated to women. It's fascinating. No, there's no other synagogue in all of Israel that seems to be dedicated to women as the Magdala Synagogue where this portrait is portrayed of the woman that we'll talk about in just a few minutes that is reaching up and touching the hem of the talit or shawl of, of, of the Savior. And so we'll talk just a little bit about that. So let's begin for just a few minutes um, with a discussion about about Mary, the, the mother of the Savior. And again, if you have questions, please ask, okay? Just, you know, this is not formal, although I'm reading and following my notes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, please. Magdala? So you had to go over there? I did. And it's not available on the internet. Um, however, I, I, I go there I go there enough to latch on to a few 
And I do have three trips to Israel planned for this year, and hopefully they'll happen. And if that is a picture that you would like, I can certainly do that. We'll just need to correspond and, and keep in touch, okay? It's, it's, the mural itself in the synagogue is as tall as your ceiling here and wraps in an arch from about the fireplace to the edge there. It is spectacular. The author of this, of the of the mural is, is, a, is a couple of Jewish fellows and the reason they received permission to do that is again this particular religiously dedicated place, the synagogue, seems to be devoted to women and, and things are written on the pillars and, and scripted into the, uh, into the walls of this synagogue talking about the devotion and, and the incredible courage of women in general. It's really an interesting place to visit. Yes. This is a new synagogue. It is. It, yes, it is. Yes, it is. In fact, the entire excavation there at Magdala is also relatively new. It's, it's kind of a, an exciting place. And with a background in historic archaeology, these places are very, very fascinating to me. In fact, one of the most... Uh, one of the most... I always open up a can of worms when I get off subject. One of the most, to me, one of the most fascinating presentations that I have that I do is, where is, where is this, this temple going to be built? And, and is it going to be the Dome of the Rock? No, yeah. no, no. But it's, it's out there, and it has an awful lot to do with... Um, with some of the, the research, the ongoing digs, as we're alluding to, that are going on right now in the city of David. Right, and there's the Gihon Spring. Yeah, Gihon Spring is right there. I read a book by Cornuke. Yes. Yeah, Robert, Robert Cornuke. Yes, and yes. he and I are on the same track on a good yeah. percentage of yeah, this it's material. A, it's, I think it's called Temple, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And it's a, it's a fascinating discussion to think about. Um, does, does there need to be a third world war? relative to the Dome of the Rock. I say just give the Arabs the Dome of the Rock. And let's just go down the street, right there in view of the Jerusalem Center, and uh, let's, let's build our temple there. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But I think they have the wind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we know. <laughs> so but, I have a question. Yes. I, I, I remember, and I, I don't remember who the teacher was, but they said something <clears throat> about the magic of the age of 14. And they talked about different ones. Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. They said she was fourteen. I don't know. What do you think she was that young? Mm -hmm. okay. Fourteen to sixteen year olds would be would be the age of the young women, and fifteen to eighteen would be the. And we'll get into and that Joseph in just Smith a second. Was fourteen. Yeah. Yeah, and you know they said Nephi was fourteen. Very young. That's yeah. right. So anyway. So our young, our young folks can accomplish much. All right, let me, let's talk just a little bit about Mary, and we'll, we'll allude to some of that in just a second. Um, I think to appreciate Mary and what she would accomplish, you're going to have to understand a little bit more about her husband, Joseph, okay? And so in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, it says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Well, a more literal translation of the Hebrew word, for carpenter, which is tecton, tecton, is a, a builder of the trades of the time, whatever season that may have been in. You may be a carpenter here, a tinsmith here, or you may be a barrel maker, or whatever the case may be. But a general builder is actually the definition for tecton, which over the years has been 
it evolved into into being carpenter. Okay. Can you spell it? Tecton. Yeah, it's T E C K T O N. Tecton, and it looks quite different in Hebrew. <laughs> you could spell it in Hebrew. Have to have to write it out for you. But there's no actual evidence at all that Joseph marries Mary's uh, husband or their children, Jesus or his four brothers had anything to do with a carpenter or wood. It just wasn't available at the time. Stone. Stone is, is, the, is the material of choice. Okay? And when you go over there, you'll understand this really quickly. There was really no wood available. It was stone. Especially Nazareth. Yeah, absolutely. You know exactly what it is. Uh, the main industry in Nazareth at this time was working from a huge stone quarry that literally Nazareth was built upon. In fact, the Mount of Precipitation or the Mount of Jumping is actually this stone quarry. And in Luke chapter 4, verses 28 through 30, we read that Christ was to be thrown off this cliff, off the precipitation, the Mount of Precipitation or the Mount of Jumping, which is why it's referred to that. Off this quarry, it says, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Now, why were they filled with wrath? Because Christ says, I am here. I am here to fulfill all Scripture. Luke what? It's in Luke chapter 4. And you can imagine these, these individuals sitting there, and this would have been extremely blasphemous to them. And so they grab Jesus, and they drag him out to the edge of this cliff to push him over to kill him. And they arose up and thrust him out of the city and led him into the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. I love this term. And it's found three or four times when Christ gets in these little pickles that seem to be, you know, it's a mob rule, yeah, mob rule a, a death thing. Uh, he just kind of disappears and goes on. And... Uh, yeah, I wish I could do that more, but it would, be, it would be great. But needless to say, the point I'm trying to make is that Joseph, Mary's husband, and Jesus and their, his four brothers, they were stone masons. And they worked, they worked probably in the quarry in Nazareth and helped build the town of Sepphoris. Sepphoris is just four miles from Nazareth, and Sepphoris was going to be where Herod was going to have his quarter, um, his, his headquarters for that particular territory, and it's a stone city. And when you go to Sepphoris and you walk through the streets of this town and you see the ruts in the stones from all of the things that have gone down the road, it's just, you almost can imagine Joseph and Jesus and, and his brothers all chipping away and, and, and uh, forming stone. Just incredible. Well, according to the Proto-Evangelism proto of James, this is an apocryphal book, okay? Proto-Evangelism of James. We're going to learn a little bit about Mary and her husband Joseph, okay? Mary, of course, is Miriam in the Hebrew tongue. We learn from this particular um, apocryphal book that Mary's parents were Jochum, that's her father, and Anna is her mother. Her father was a wealthy landowner, a direct descendant of David, and Anna's kin included priests that worked in the temple in Jerusalem. You know, if I was poor, poor Joseph, um, trying, to, trying to, 
trying to impress Mary. I've got a real challenge on my hand because this wealthy family that Mary's from, this made her courtable. And my children still don't understand the term court, courting someone. You know, I have to get dating, wanting to date Mary, almost impossible because Joseph was, was, a, was a stonemason and he didn't have much money and yet he's trying to, he's trying to uh, impress this young lady who comes from a family of wealth. And so Joseph decided the best way, and again, according to this apocryphal text, the best way I'm going to impress Mary is go to Jerusalem on Passover, present my sacrifice, repent of my sins, and, and ask for assistance and help, which is pleading for acceptance. So that's what he did. And then returning to Nazareth, he met Jochum in the streets of all things, and he asked Jochum, who would have the final say on who Mary would marry, he asked for her hand. And Jochum immediately said yes, with no restrictions. Usually a father would say, Yes, you can marry my daughter, but dun, 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 dun. Well, there was no dun, 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 dun. Joachim said, I was expecting you to ask. And so it's kind of an interesting, interesting story. J-O-A-C-H-I-M, Joachim. And so Joseph, who had loved Mary since they were small children, had an opportunity now to marry. And as we talked about just a few minutes ago, the boy would have been probably 15 to 18, and the woman, the young woman, would have been 14 to 16 years old at the time of marriage. Okay? So why, why this woman? Why, why Mary? Why was she singularly different than, than anyone else? Did you have a question? Please. I'm just wondering... Joseph, what's his background? Do you uh, know? Like you said, it would be unusual for him to be a widower, a woman from such a wealthy family. There is some indication that this was not the first marriage for Joseph, that perhaps he was married prior to marrying Mary. But. Yeah, and, and stepchildren. And stepchildren. The, the, those, those sources of that information are a little bit jaded, just a little bit hard to follow through. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think that Joseph married Mary, and this was his first and only wife. Um, there's also some indication that Joseph was perhaps a little older than 15 to 18, maybe in his 20s. And there's also some research that indicates that Joseph died at a relatively young age, probably in the line of doing his profession as a stonemason. So he was also a stonemason. Yes, yes. And not from a wealthy family. And not from a wealthy family. This is the proto, the evangelism of Thomas tells us that he was, he was much poorer and hesitant to even ask Mary to, to, to marry because he didn't have the money in the background that she, that so she, she had. <laughs> that I don't know. There is a relationship there. I, let me just... Okay. It's, oh, yeah, it's okay. No, that's fine. That's okay. That's, that's great. Um, Mary has, has the interesting... There's not a lot of women talked about in the scriptures, not a, in any of our scriptures for that matter. Um, in the Bible, um, Mary's life is only just alluded to. However, um, in the Book of Mormon, 
her, her legacy is prophesied about in 1 Nephi 11, in Messiah chapter 3, and in Alma 7, we read about her life and ministry. And so the Book of Mormon is pretty strong on, on Mary and, and, and really foretells um, the legacy she's going to leave. However, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John provide only small glimpses into her life because, of course, their focus, rightly so, is on the Savior and, and His ministry. However, the early Christian church gave Mary an interesting title. It's called Theotokos. Theotokos. T-H-E-E dash O-T-O dash K-O-S. Theotokos. And that translates to two things. Bearer, meaning she gave birth, bearer, and also the mother of God. That's what that translates to. So the early church um, did not lose track of Mary and felt she was extremely important and had a real significant role, of course, in the plan our Heavenly Father had for us. And so they have given her this Theotokos title. Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of Twelve said this, Can we speak too highly of her whom the Lord has blessed above all women? There was only one Christ, there was only one Mary. Each was noble and great in the premortal existence, and each was foreordained to the ministry he or she performed. We cannot think but the Father would choose the greatest female spirit to be the mother of his son. I thought that's kind of interesting. Luke's account of the story of the Annunciation or the announcing of Mary, that's Luke chapter 1, gives us kind of a window to better understand this remarkable woman. Uh, through her interaction with the angel Gabriel and then Elizabeth, we see her trying to grasp with the reality of what she's been asked to do. And again, keep in mind, she may be only 14 to 16 years old. You may have a child 14 to 16 years old. You can kind of sympathize a little bit very, very quickly the challenges that they might have had. Her story reminds us that God is aware that we are ordinary people. And sometimes ordinary people are asked to do extraordinary things. And Mary was one of those kinds of folks. She literally became Jesus's first disciple and thus became a model for us to follow if we in fact want to uh, choose to follow the Savior. So that's a little bit about Mary. That's, I think, enough that I, I want to, to, to dwell on there. I'm going to go now stay with the Bible just a little bit and talk about this second picture. Uh, this is the woman from Caesarea Philippi. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, from the H manuscripts, I don't know if you remember Glenna Chase Kimball. Mm -hmm. um, there was the, there, the history of Mary being, you know, it being in the temple was pure. Everyone knew that there was no opportunity for her to get pregnant and right. all that kind of stuff. But that there was a rivalry with Caiaphas's family, Mark, the disciple. But have you looked into that? At I all? have not. Okay. I have not. I, I'm aware of what you're talking about, but I have not researched that. Um, it's a little outside the scope of my research. Now, if that were, you were talking about Joseph, I'm sure that we could deal with that. But um, no, um, I have not. And there, there's so much we don't know. We don't know about this. Um, but I find sometimes the apocryphal writings seem to be some of the, some of the best ones to go to if you want to find out this stuff. Yes. Yes. Of Thomas was it was it's it was a Galilean text that was found about 1200. So it's we're, we're talking uh, a thousand years after 
the birth of the Savior, um, as was a number of others that were found. Um, there's some allusions, however, to this particular text that you're talking about in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which puts it back prior to, of course, the time of the Savior. And um, I'm kind of a Dead Sea Scroll guy. I really find the Dead Sea Scrolls fascinating. And they're getting more and more interesting as time moves forward and people are starting to understand a little more what's, what's going on with the Sassine group of individuals that lived outside of Jerusalem. Uh, there, at, there where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Um, don't be afraid to go to apocryphal texts. If you find something that you think is important, then that's great. It's important to you. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff. Um, there is a book of Mary. There is a book of Mary. There is a book of Mary. Uh, you can, you, most of these apocryphal texts, you can, you can purchase them online. And if you want, part of that free, you can go in there and get the free apocryphal. Some of them, yeah. Okay. If you want a list of real good ones, um, like the Book of Jasher, oh, the Book of one. Jonah, um, call me or text me, and I'll give you a list of, of some of. There's some great stuff in the Nag Hammond Library, but the Dead Sea Scrolls have got some really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, that'll be very meaningful to you, and not meaningful to others because you'll understand what they're talking about, especially with regards to the temple rituals involved. Okay? All right, let's... Yeah, within the Dead Sea Scrolls, yes. Um, let's talk for just a second about this young lady here. Um, to set the stage for this story, uh, she's pagan. She is not Jewish, okay? She's from Caesarea Philippi, and if you know the Sea of Galilee, it's shaped a little bit like a harp, okay? And at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee is where the River Jordan flows, flows down to the Dead Sea. The River Jordan comes to us from three, used to be six, three springs about 40 miles north of the top of the Sea of Galilee at Caesarea Philippi. That's where she, she lived, okay? She's up near, near those springs. Yeah, you've seen uh, those. Sometimes, yeah. Some of those, some, some people refer to this area as Banis, Banis, B-A-N-I-S, as the name for Caesarea Philippi, the, the one and the same. But that's where this woman lived, okay? Now, she has a problem. She has an issue of blood. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that might be, but she's had this issue of blood for 12 years. And she was wealthy at the time, and she's not wealthy anymore because she paid off all these doctors to try and help her, and nobody was able to help her, okay? Um, she's, she's heard about Jesus, and she hears that on a particular day, she is, he is going to be ministering in Capernaum, okay? That's Peter's city, and it's right on the bend or the harp edge of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum's right there. She's, she says, I'm going to walk down there. I'm going to walk some, some 60 miles time this out so I can be there in Capernaum when the Savior comes. Now, religious Jews wear a shawl or a talit. I'm going to tell you right now, in just one second, why they have these. All right, that's close enough. All right. So, um, religious Jews and, and 
rabbis, and the Savior is a rabbi. He's, he understands the scriptures. He didn't go to a rabbinical college. He, he came from, from heaven. And so he understands an awful lot of stuff. Anyway, uh, to, to stay in tune with everyone, uh, they wear a talit. Now, why do they wear a talit? Because it infers and reminds them of all the commandments given to Moses. In fact, the strings on the hem of the talit are knotted, so the sum of the strings and knots equals 613. 613, which is the number of laws and covenants the Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. I'm sure glad I didn't live then. Six, and I have a hard time with the Ten Commandments. Can you imagine 613 different things you need to be aware of? Okay. Uh, it was probably the Savior's talent, which they're inferring here in the picture, that this woman simply touched. Now, from a Jewish perspective, this would have been terrible, uh, doubly unclean to have done this because she's not a Jew to begin with and she's bleeding. And those are two things that Jews would, would shy away from. She apparently thought she could sneak up, touch the robe of the Savior, sneak away, be healed, and, and that would be the end of it. But Jesus did not want her to be filled with guilt, having stolen her healing, as it's referred to have. So let's, <coughs> let's read the 12 verses. Here's the story. It's found in Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 34. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather worse, when she heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him. Now, if I was sitting here talking to a group of men, we would stop, I would close this, and we would talk about giving healing blessings and having virtue leave our hands and heal people. This is a whole different subject, but it's hugely important. The Savior felt the healing power he had in the form of virtue leave his body. And what did he say in, when that happened? And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press or the multitude and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? Like, you've got to be kidding, you know? And he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. There's not a greater story in the Bible of faith than this woman from Caesarea Philippi. Yeah, yeah, Peter walked on water for a minute or two, but that was it. I don't think it was even a minute or two. But when I'm out, and, and you guys have experienced this, when we're floating in the Dead Sea and we talk about the issues involving the Savior and that sea, the Sea of Galilee, how he calmed the waters and how Peter walked on the waters, that's really incredible stuff. But there's nothing, nothing that beats this woman and her faith to be able to touch simply the hem of the robe of the Savior and be healed. Now, the Savior was so impressed. Oh, question? Well, yeah. I just thought it was interesting because you said the Jews saw her, they, they shunned kind of the woman and especially the bleeding woman. Yes. Right? So that's, that's a concern for women being a secondary citizen and that their gift of creation was 
part of their shunning. Sure, right? absolutely. So that you see, it's like, oh, that's terrible. And then when when Christ said, you know, virtue has come out of him, but the Jews also say they they refer her to the woman with the stolen mm -hmm. healing. But when Christ talked to her, he said, thy faith has made thee whole. That's correct. Not stolen, not shunned, not bloody, not, you know what I mean? Yes. So I kind of, I worry a lot of the things that the Jews have told us as being very biased, right, against women. I think Joseph Smith is the greatest restorer of that. But Christ right there. I mean, he's teaching his apostles right there. The Jews have still a lot to learn about Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, and, and I think in a way when, I, I won't go, but it's, it's oh, I, I agree with you. said such a beautiful thing, right? Yes. Thy faith has made thee whole. And again, this kind of goes into a, yeah, dis in yeah, a discussion about, um, about giving blessings. I'll just say this to you. When, when two elders come in to give you an, an a blessing, uh, for a healing blessing, um, do they really need to be there? Did this woman require two elders to put hands on her head and heal her? No, no. Her faith is what healed her. We have more power within ourselves individually with our faith than we think we do. Absolutely. We think do. It's great to have an anointing and have elders with the priesthood come and seal that anointing and provide that extra push, you might say, but it's your faith that heals you. It's what's inside of you. And, and I have given blessings when I have felt virtue leave me. And it's an incredible feeling. An incredible feeling. You can feel like you're, you're getting drained just a little bit. It, it's hard to explain, but that virtue is really incredible. But the Savior uses this woman's experience as a description of faith. And I want to share that with you. This is the most important thing, perhaps. Um, in conversation with the Apostle Thomas, you know, the doubting Thomas, the Savior would define her faith experience with this woman. And he said this, and it's in Luke 20, excuse me, it's in John 20, John 20, verse 29. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. That's the whole story right there. It's a story of faith. Courage and faith. Courage to, as a non-Jew bleeding, to even attempt this and faith to have it done. So, a, a great woman. Okay, we're going to talk now about my eighth grade aunt here. Um, uh, her sister was my great-grandmother. This is Lucy Mack, okay? Um, does that name ring a bell to anybody? Does anybody know who Lucy Mack was? Okay. All right. Let me just set this off to the side here. So you're related to Lucy Mack? I am. I'm related to the Macks. And so to go to the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial and be able to uh, be there in that area where the Macks were was incredible. I had so many incredible experiences on my mission, you cannot believe it. We decided when we put our papers in that we were not going to request anything in particular. Um, but there were people in the historical department of the church that I think knew who we were. And so they said, oh, this is a no-brainer. What are you going to send the Godfreys to Sharon, Vermont? Well, that's, we were not surprised <laughs> when we read the letter uh, to, to go there. But we were surprised at what we ended up doing up there. We not only 
toured the visitor center and took people through and explained. Got involved in archaeological digging. Got involved in the establishment of a brand new historical site in Topsfield, Massachusetts, because we happened to be back there. We got involved in so many things that are unrelated to what we were supposed to do. It was incredible to see that the Lord would take advantage of our being there. And we loved every minute of it. There's not a week that goes by and we've been home a year and a half that we don't talk about something relative to, to South Royalton or Sharon, Vermont, where we lived. It was just a fascinating experience. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the Max, this woman in particular here. She shares a lot of stories, too, from that. And shows pictures on the This, we're, we're so proud of a couple of things in particular. I'll share one that nobody's aware of yet. Um, Elder Ballard, providing he lives long enough and COVID goes away soon enough, will be dedicating a brand new monument in the Topsfield City Cemetery. It'll be a monument that will be a second witness to the Smiths of, of New England. Of course, at our site, you've got a hundred foot tall obelisk called the Joseph Smith Birthplace Monument. You all know what it looks like, okay? There's a similar monument now being put in Topsfield, Massachusetts. And why is it being put in Topsfield? Uh, that's where four generations, actually five generations of Smiths came from. The very first Smith to come from England came to Topsfield. Okay, that's Robert Smith. And then Samuel I, Samuel II, Aziel Smith, and Joseph Smith Sr. are all from Topsfield. Five generations of Smiths were there. And so we had the wonderful opportunity incredible experience of, of conversing with and trying to convince the Topsfield Selectmen, Cemetery Committee, and many, many other people associated with the Historic Society that this would be important to do in Topsfield. And it was done almost at midnight in the cemetery in Topsfield. There's so many stories associated with this. For some reason, we got pushed to meetings that were like at 11 and 12 o'clock at night in Topsfield Cemetery with this crowd of people wondering who these two folks were dressed in suits and dresses with names tags that it came clear down from Sharon, Vermont to Topsfield to talk to them about their, the history of their town. And this was remarkable. And it got done. And it was expensive. And it got paid for without the church having to spend a penny. And it will be dedicated by a Smith ancestor, we hope, Elder Ballard, has consented to do this. And it'll be read up in the church news, and it'll be in the newspapers, and you guys will be the first to know about it. And you'll say, I know about that thing. So when you go back east to Boston, and you start your trek to see the leaves, like all sisters love to do, see the leaves of New England, you'll want to stop in Topsfield, where five generations of Smiths started, and see this monument dedicated to them. Enough said, but uh, that's, a, that's a fun thing that you're going to want to be able to do. Well, Solomon Mack is... The oh, excuse me. It was supposed to be on the martyrdom of the prophet last June. And that didn't happen because of COVID. So it's now been pushed and we're pushing to have it done on Father's Day. Um, and that probably isn't going to happen. Um, so it's probably going to be in June. 
okay, June of this year. And the church has already alluded to it. You can go on the internet now and you can type in Topsfield, Massachusetts, and you'll see this, this monument I'm talking about and read just a little bit about it. But its dedication has not been set yet. You haven't seen anything, Debbie, have you? Neither, neither have I. How big is the town? Topsfield? It's about the size of, um, it's not the size of Brigham City. Um, it's, it's probably got, what would you say, Debbie? 18 to 20,000 people? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. But it is the most beautiful, picturesque New England town you can imagine. The, the, all the homes look just like New England homes, you know, painted very, very white, you know, and they have the porches out front, big lawns, you know. It's, it's an incredibly beautiful place. It's suburbia Boston now, and so it's become a place of wealth. There's a lot of people with a lot of money that now live in the Topsfield area because it's, it's right there. All right, enough on Topsfield. Let's talk a little bit about uh, this woman here. Um, again, this is, this is Lucy Mack Smith. Solomon Mack, Lucy's father, moved into Tunbridge, Vermont in 1795. Okay, Tunbridge, Vermont is about three miles from Sharon, Vermont, where Joseph was born. So in your mind, if you kind of know where Sharon, Vermont is, on that same dot literally is Tunbridge. It's really close to that. Uh, Solomon and his sons established a general store and numerous other businesses in Tunbridge. They were some of the very first settlers of Tunbridge. And we could talk a lot about this stuff, but we're, we're here really talking about her. At this general store would be where Joseph Smith Sr. would meet Lucy Mack. Lucy Mack was a clerk in the store that was uh, run and operated by her brother. And uh, in comes Joseph Smith Sr. one day. And I like to think it was love at first sight, but probably not. Um, but they courted, as we call it, or dated a little bit. And then on January 24th, 1796, Lucy would marry Joseph Smith Sr. And they prospered on a farm that was given them by Aziel Smith as a wedding gift right there in Tunbridge for about six years. And then in 1802, the family moved to Randolph, Vermont. Randolph, Vermont is only 10 miles away from Tunbridge. All these little towns you read about and hear about in Vermont are all within a 25-mile area. They're all real close to one another. And why did they move to, to Randolph? To open up a mercantile store, much like her brother had that she worked as a clerk in when she met Joseph. So they're going to have a little store there. Now, Lucy is 27 years old when they move to Randolph. And when she's 27 years old there in Randolph, at the little store, she catches cold. And this cold develops into a fever and some heavy, heavy coughing for long periods of time. She had COVID-19. No, she didn't have COVID. <laughs> she, she ended up having tuberculosis is what it was. And her husband, Joseph, was grief-stricken because the doctors who were administering to her said, we have no, no cure for this. We can't help her. And she will pass away. And she's going to pass away very quickly. So get your affairs in order. Well, Lucy, hearing this and understanding what was happening, turned, to, turned the only way she could, knowing her, and that was to God, to try and, and help her. And so she prayed to her Father in Heaven and uh, for for her health and healing. And she says, she heard a voice 
And the voice said to her, Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Let your heart be comforted. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. So this is why she was on her deathbed. She heard this, this statement. Now her mother, Lydia Gates Mack, who was attending to her at that time, leaned over her body and said, Lucy, I think your speech is returning. And in an amazement, Lucy then said, Yes, mother, the Lord will let me live. If I am faithful to the promise which I just made to him, and I comfort my mother, comfort my husband, and take care and comfort my children, he will let me live. So Lucy was healed. Again, why? Because of her faith. The doctors bailed on her, just like the doctors bailed on this woman here. And because of her faith, she was healed. And because of her faith, she was healed. Now, following this significant experience, Lucy then lingered and wanted more spiritual insight and, and, and more religion in her life. And so she visited several churches to seek out what she called the word of life. And she became somewhat disheartened because she couldn't find what she was looking for. In fact, her comments are very prophetic. She said this, After hearing the minister through, I returned home convinced that he neither understood nor appreciated the subject upon which he spoke. And I said in my heart that there was not yet upon the earth the religion what I sought. And I therefore determined to examine my Bible and taking Jesus and his disciples as my guide to endeavor me to find God's will. My Bible, I intended, would be my guide to life and salvation. So, this is a woman now who has searched for truth and not found it. And so she's going to uh, stick to the scriptures and see what can happen. What a perfect setup, though. I mean, for... for What's going to happen? Of, That's yeah. exactly right. Wow. Now, I want to allude to two other ex really interesting experiences involving this woman and, and being healed. Uh, because of faith, okay, faith in healing. Um, after their experience in, in Randolph, they moved uh, about 20 miles away and crossed the Connecticut River and into West Lebanon, New Hampshire. Again, still in the same area. And their typhoid fever raged up and down the, the New England countryside. Typhoid fever killed thousands and thousands. In six months, it killed 5,600 people in New England. And her family, everyone in her family, contracted typhoid fever. All eight of her children uh, caught it. And this is in 1813, okay, 1813. Um, her 10-year-old daughter, Sophronia, contracted it and became critically ill. For three months, the doctors tried to administer to her. And again, as is the case with some of the rest of this that we've talked about, were unsuccessful in helping her in any way, and they told her she would die. Well, Sophronia stopped breathing because of typhoid fever, stopped breathing. And so Lucy grabbed her daughter, Sophronia, grabbed her and brought her to her breast and just held her tight and started pacing the floor. And the people that were there with her at that time said to, said to Lucy, it is all of no use. You are certainly crazy. Your child is dead. Put her down. How old was Sophronia? Sophronia was 10. Okay. But suddenly, Sophronia gasped for breath. And she's going to live. Now, this is really interesting. I've, I had a group of doctors tell me that the impact of grabbing this child as hard as she could and bringing her to her breast was almost the same thing as a heart massage. And, and that walking and pacing with her. Thank you, Deb. 
That's a good song, by the way. <laughs> if you like country. Anyway, it might have been what revived the daughter, but nevertheless, the daughter was revived and, uh, and, 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 would, li and would live. Yes? But since her faith was so strong that she basically killed herself in connection to God, why shouldn't her faith have been so strong that she... She basically did a healing miracle blessing on her own child. I'm sure it was. Don't you think so? Absolutely. So don't you think that's Absolutely. that a doctor would say, oh no, she just did like heart resuscitation on right. her own body. And, and, of, least, and of course they, they had... The story. Oh, you're saying those doctor. faces back yeah. there. Yeah. I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> We have to explain why everything we're at. I know. It's like, <laughs> and it's getting more and more that way, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. too bad. It really is. Well, let's talk a little bit about her younger child, Joseph Jr., seven years old, and he contracted typhoid fever. Now, part of our responsibility at the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial was to tell this story in graphic <coughs> detail, and we won't do that today. You haven't had breakfast, you haven't had lunch, and so we won't, we won't bother doing that. Um, but this is an incredible story. Just to hit a couple of things, these surgeons were called to look at Joseph's leg. Uh, the, the typhoid fever went from his shoulder to his leg, and they said, um, if Joseph is to survive, the leg will have to be removed. And of course, who's the one that says, no, you're not going to do that? It's going to be the same woman that's seen all of this healing happen in her life. And so uh, they decide to um, attempt an, a, a, an operation. And of course, they bring binding cords to tie Joseph up. They bring the liquor to try and dumb him up. They had no anesthesia at the time, and this is going to be a real brutal operation. He refused both to be bound, and he refused the liquor. And uh, there's a whole story here with this next line. All he wanted to do was be held by his father. A lot of people question why. Why not take the liquor? Why not be, be bound up? No, the seven-year-old, you think of a seven-year-old child, where's his confidence going to be in his parents? His dad, I want to be in the arms of my dad. But this is what he said to his mother. Mother, I want you to leave the room, for I knew, know you cannot bear to see me suffer so. Father can stand it, but you have carried me so much and watched over me so long, you are almost worn out. Then looking up in my face, his eyes swimming in tears, he continued, Now, Mother, promise me that you will not stay, will you? The Lord will help me. I shall get through it. Then a little period of time, the, the operation starts. And then when the third piece of bone was removed... And this is a whole nother fireside we could do sometime. Lucy burst into the room, okay? Oh, what a spectacle for a mother's eye. The wound torn open, the blood still gushing from it, and the bed literally covered with blood. Joseph was pale as a corpse, and large drops of sweat rolled down his face, while upon every feature was depicted the most uttermost agony. Okay, this is what she saw just prior to passing out. Well, Joseph is going to live, of course. He's going to have a slight limp for the rest of his life because of this particular incident. However, much of what Joseph accomplished and the legacy that he eventually is going to leave can be credited to a great deal to that woman right there, to his mother. All right, enough on that. Did they remove, they remove some bones? Three pieces. Three pieces. Was it like covered in... In uh, infection? When they opened up Joseph's leg, they found three pieces of diseased bone. The pain suffered is when you remove the bone from living flesh. 
and I won't get into it, but they did. And, and, and Wasn't it like experimental? They didn't yes. know if it would work? Yes, yes. The doctor, what's his name, Debbie? I'll think about it. Think, <laughs> the reason I ask her is because it's name slipping me. Um, is is a hero in church lore and in his stories, Doctor Nathan Nathaniel Smith. No relation to Joseph to the Smith family, but then Nathaniel Smith came came down and performed this operation, and he was um, successful in doing so. One of the very first operations to to remove diseased bone without amputating the leg. Let's just put it that way. Uh, it's incredible, incredible thing. And it's written, written up in journals. And if you go to the university, the college, Dartmouth, Dartmouth you, you can go in and read about Nathaniel Smith and Joseph Smith. And you can see Nathaniel Smith's tools. I show those tools when I tore. I mean, it's saws. And huge pointy instruments that are extremely scary. Yeah, that's that kind of stuff. All right, let's take a few minutes and now talk about Emma. I like this picture of Emma. I've seen a lot of pictures of Emma that I don't like, but I really like what Jane Arnold did with, with this picture of, of Emma. And uh, talk about her. Um, Joseph, of course, was not alone in the challenges that he's going to face. He's going to be escorted by this woman right there, Emma. And for certainty... Let me make this very clear. The record is uncontestable. Joseph loved Emma with his whole heart. Amberly Nelson here, excited about our upcoming conference, Hope for Heaven, on September 18th. And I'm really excited that I'll have my son with us that day. Uh, James Nelson here. He's got a lot of great information. What's happening among college-age kids everywhere, what's happening on the universities, this woke movement. Uh, it's hard not to notice the increasingly secular and woke culture that is going on today. Ultimately, we have to fight for the culture of this country. And right now, the culture of this country is a sickening culture. And we are on the brink of losing the greatest country in the history of humanity. I believe that my generation can be the greatest generation in American history, or we can lose this country. We are going to ultimately win and triumph. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Be sure and join us. That's September 18th, uh, Hope for Heaven. It's going to be phenomenal. Don't miss our Latter-day Media's inaugural conference, Hope for Heaven beginning September 18th at 9 a.m. Your ticket gives you access to a full day of thought-provoking speaker panels streamed live from the Kimber Academy in Lehigh, Utah. You'll also receive access to our brand new virtual library, dozens of faith-promoting virtual presentations on a variety of spiritual topics. The virtual conference will be available at latterdaynetwork.com.